Thank you guys all for being here tonight. This is one of our discipleship seminars uh, that we teach. We usually do these a couple times a year on different topics. And so uh, we, we tend to record these and put them online. Some of them we've, we've we filmed. This one we're audio recording. So I'm glad you all are with us. Uh, this is going to be a two-part series because we felt that it was a topic that was large and has a lot of things that we could talk about. And so uh, we're going to do half of it tonight and another half on the 30th. So I hope that you will uh, be able to make it both times. Um, so tonight will be the first of two dealing with salvation and sovereignty. What I mean by that is we'll be dealing with a group of doctrines that answer the question, why is it that some people are saved and others are not? Now, there's kind of an obvious answer to that, right? That, that Protestants, that evangelicals would, would answer all the same. Well, some people accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, and others do not, right? And that's clear. Amen. Everyone kind of agrees on that. But there's like a second level to that question. Uh, it's this idea of, you know, that Paul asks himself about his own countrymen, the Jews, in Romans chapter 9. He was like, why have so many Jews, Paul's countrymen, why have they not accepted the gospel? And he says, and he's, he's exploring this by the Holy Spirit, and there's this idea that there, there's, there's another level to this, right? What's going on beneath the scenes? On that level, uh, not all Christians agree. Some say that the decisive factor of, of who is saved and who is not is primarily based on our own free will, right? We, whoever, who chooses it, who does not, and man is the master of his own fate. And God just respects man's decision in this matter. Uh, I remember growing up and hearing, you know, that God cast one vote for you, the devil cast a vote against you, and you're the deciding vote. Something along those lines, right? Uh, sometimes this is called historically an Arminian view. It's named after a Dutch theologian named uh, Jacob Arminius. Um, Arminians, though, were reacting to a view that was uh, very common among the reformers, um, of the 15 and 1600s, right? A view that was trying to reclaim uh, St. Augustine's view of salvation. A view that is central to the theology of the Reformation and is sometimes called Reformed theology. Sometimes it's called Calvinism because John Calvin was a theologian who really kind of took all these ideas in Scripture and just kind of put them in order so they're kind of easier to digest and able to understand. He systematized them. And so we're going to kind of be weighing that tonight. Right, so Arminian, the Arminian view really tends to say that really the ultimate decision is based, you know, of who is saved and who is not. Who decides that ultimately? It's man. The Reformed or Calvinistic view says that ultimately God is the deciding factor. That the ultimate choice of who is saved and who is not, the full final answer is based on God's sovereign choice. And that's not to, to say that, that humans have no, no role in this or don't make a choice at all. It's just saying that when we talk about human responsibility and God's sovereignty, the form view puts more weight on God's sovereignty. So fun times. We're going to be talking about that tonight. And um, I'm looking forward to it, right? And we're going to take four hours to discuss it. And I tell you, we're just going to scratch the surface. I, I neglected to mention if you don't have notes, there are some notes in this back table. There's some pens. Um, mostly the notes are because there's a lot of scriptures in here, and I may or may not read them all just so that you have them. You know where I'm coming. I may just mention them and move on. We got, my notes are 17 pages, and so yours are shorter. I'm going to have to manage my time. 
But anyway, as we're talking about this, uh, you know, over the next two sessions, you know, we are presenting a view that is the Reformed view, sometimes it's called the Calvinistic view. I know that so, for some people understand those terms, some don't like those terms. I'm just like summering for shorthand. Sometimes it's easier to say to say that. But this is the theology of Martin Luther and John Calvin, Thomas Watson, John Owen, John Bunyan, uh, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, G.I. Packer, John Piper, Tim Keller, Wayne Grudem, Al Mohler, I, I, could, I could go on. So a lot, a lot of guys that, that we like, a lot of guys that we read and respect. Um, it is also the view of the elders here at Living Hope Church. Uh, we believe it to be biblical and to be faithful. But sometimes uh, these doctrines are described as the, uh, the five points of Calvinism, for better or for worse, uh, which what it really just tries to summarize what I like to call, what a lot, a lot of uh, Reformed people like to call the doctrines of grace, right? So then there's a whole history behind all this and the debate and development and different groups who have made alterations to it here and there. I'm not getting into all that tonight, okay? So there are plenty of good books if you want to read the history of all of this, you know, but ultimately... My goal tonight is not to, is to teach you is not to teach you a system, right? I'm going to teach it systematically. Paul even talks, you know, when he's writing to Timothy and Titus about passing on the pattern of sound teaching. So Paul even had like an organized way that he communicated doctrine as he was planting churches, right? So I'm going to teach it hopefully in an organized way, but ultimately I just want you to grow in your knowledge of God and and worship Him and praise Him for the, the goodness of His salvation. So I would like to summarize real quickly on the front end. I'm going to show my cards and you what the five points are, but I'm actually going to mention a sixth one on the front end. So tonight we're going to cover like three points, uh, the first three points, and then next, not two weeks from now, we'll cover the, uh, the last three. So I actually have these uh, noted uh, or put in your notes there. The first thing, the first point is this we're going to be talking about is the supremacy and sovereignty of God. God is the supreme and primary being in existence. He's number one. It's all about him. All things exist for his good pleasure and to accomplish his purpose. God is sovereign over all things. And that means that nothing comes to pass in God's world uh, without his say-so. He has a plan for all things, and everything that does happen, even the choices of man, are according to his unchanging counsel and decree. And he made this decree before the foundation of the world. So I kind of have two aspects there. The, the supremacy of God, Just I think it's important for us to understand that God is first. right? And really what the weight of that means, that God is first. And it's not about us, it's about him. Secondly, that God is, is sovereign, right? That he actually exhibits authority and he rules over uh, his universe, right? All things work according to his rule, his purposes. And I think everything that follows, it's really going to be important for us to kind of, I put that, that first uh, because it's important for us to settle that in our mind. Everything else will flow a lot easier <laughs> once we have that settled. The second thing is the extent of the effect of sin on man. We all believe the fall of man into sin corrupted really every aspect of us. Right? But it's sometimes more severe than we thought. We are not merely sick or weak spiritually. We're not just in a position where we just need a little extra help. Scripture says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in sin. 
We are unresponsive. We are blind. We are enslaved to evil. I mean, the, the scripture has some very stern and severe words describing the condition of man. And it, it's painful to read. Sin has put us at war with God as such. And the human heart, therefore, is unwilling and incapable of voluntarily submitting to God. No one seeks God or responds to God of his own will or choice. The third thing is that the grace of the fathers is we're we'll be talking about the grace of the father's election to salvation. So with this in mind, why is anybody saved? We believe before the foundation of the world, before God said, "Let there be light," according to his own counsel, and not due to any foreseen faith or merit in anybody, God the Father lovingly chose some from every tribe, tongue, and nation out of the whole of fallen humanity and those he would save through Jesus Christ. And those he would make known to them the, the, the riches of his glory and grace. Those that he has not elected to salvation, he has chosen to leave in their fallen state and to face his just wrath. Those are the first three we'll cover tonight. But let me briefly mention uh, the next three, just so you know where we're going. Uh, the fourth point is the grace of the Son's atoning death for the elect. God the Son was given these people from the Father, and it is for them specifically and effectually that he was to give his life for. In this way, he did not just make salvation possible for all, but he made it certain for all the Father had given him. Fifth, the grace of the Spirit's application of redemption. God the Spirit was sent to apply all the work of Christ to the elect, those whom God the Father had chosen. He does the, the work of regeneration where he gives a new heart to those so that when they hear the gospel message, they are freed from the enslaving power of sin and are by God's grace finally able to freely choose to believe the gospel. But we also believe they will do so unfailingly. Lastly, the grace of a faith that will result in salvation. All and You see like that a, 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 the Father, Son, and Spirit are working together to accomplish a unified plan. They will certainly fulfill. The Father has chosen. He has given them to the Son. The Son dies for their sins, effectually ransoms them. The Spirit applies that to God's elect. And with all of that said, they will never fall away. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will hold uh, God's saints firm to the end. All who are saved will remain in faith to the end and will be raised up on the last day. That's a lot, right? And we're going to take it bit by bit, and, uh, and we'll give space to kind of look at the scriptures and ask questions. Um, these are called the doctrines of grace, and they're called so because they really do highlight that salvation is entirely from beginning to end, before the foundation of the world, into eternity. It's all grace. It's all a God who saves sinners from beginning to end. I almost called this seminar an invitation to Reformed theology or an invitation to Calvinism or an invitation to the doctrines of grace because my goal is, is also not just to teach these in an academic way, but like I really hope that, that I can convince you that they're good, right? That these are not just a, a heady intellectual exercise, you know, um, but they're good. They're, they're glorifying to God. Right, and you may come from a whole different place. In, in this very room, there may be some of you who are convinced you're like, "I'm a Calvinist." You know, uh, give me a beard and a pipe, and let's talk theology. You know, like, and you're like, you're in that camp all the way. You know, and you're here because it's just encouraging. 
You may be here and you're like, I'm familiar with this. I've heard about it before and I'm not convinced, but I'm willing to listen. You know what? If that's you, I'm glad you're here. Or maybe you're familiar, like, I've heard of stuff like this before. I've read, like, the word predestination in Scripture. Didn't know what to do with it, but I'd like to hear some more. Or maybe you're like, I've never heard of this. I just heard there was free snacks. And you know what? I'm glad you're here, too. But you're in for something. <laughs> no. Um, so I, just, just, I, I recognize that everybody's in different places here, you know. And, uh, and I, in my life, have been in different places with this. Um, but man, I love the doctrines of grace. I love the doctrines of God's sovereignty and his election salvation. Um, and I think that these doctrines properly understood, they bring great comfort to Christians. And they bring a lot of glory to God. Now, I will say, like even in like the traditional confessions, the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, I mean, a, a lot of these Reformed confessions that all talk about this, a lot of them have like a disclaimer specifically here. And they're like, this needs to be handled with care. And I'll give you an example. Like the doctrine of hell is one of those. Like Christians, we, we believe in the doctrine of hell. Jesus taught more about hell than he did about heaven. It's a firm thing. It's a God-glorifying thing. But man, we could talk about hell in such a way that it's actually like discouraging, dishonoring to God. Like, you know, it can be handled wrongly, and we've all seen that, right? So I want you to understand, like, even as we talk about this, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to be like bold but also humble, and, and I'll attempt that to the best of my ability. I will also say it's similar to uh, a doctrine like eschatology of the end times, where if it can be overemphasized to the point where people are like, oh, please shut up. You know, and maybe you've known that before. I was I went to college, you know, and that was like everyone's just like let's de- at a Christian college, and everybody wants to debate this, right? And I I got so turned off for a while because of that, and that maybe that's where you are as well. And I, like I said, my my goal is to invite you because I think these are good, right? I think God this what's, what's, what's kind of cool about this is because with these doctrines, God's almost like there's something cool here, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna like peek, let you peek behind the curtain to see what's really happening. That's what I think the doctrine of election is. It's God saying, you have no idea how awesome your salvation is. I've been working on it. I've known you by name. I've called you by name before I created the world. Your name was written in my book. Like, and it's one of those things that like, we learn about almost later on. And, it's a po- and I think God revealed He didn't have to, right? I think God revealed this to us for our joy and for our comfort and for his glory. So I'm going to give you, uh, before I even, this is a long introduction, I know. I'm going to give you six things uh, I think that I think this can encourage you to. And, and these are just, this is purely just my opinion. This has been my experience, but um, so, but I'm going to say things that I think that are uh, ways this, this doctrine can encourage you. These doctrines. The doctrines, number one, and they're written down on your sheet there. Uh, the doctrines of grace, I think, will change the way you think about God for the better. Um, perhaps more than any other set of doctrines, uh, these direct us to the supremacy of God in all things. They exalt him, and they draw special attention to his wisdom, his knowledge, his power, his grace, his righteousness, his love, his justice, his sovereignty. There, there's some, these doctrines have a way of making God bigger in our thinking. It's very much a God-centered theology, and we'll talk more about that later. So secondly, with that in mind, the doctrines of grace will humble you. Do you remember Isaiah... In the, I think it's chapter 6, you know, he's a 
priest in the time of Uzziah when he dies and he's in the temple and he just witnesses God's glory. And what's his immediate response? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips living amongst a people of unclean lips. There's something about like the more we behold God's glory, like it does two things. It fills us with joy and it fills us with like a holy tear, like a humility. And, and, and something about learning these doctrines, I remember that when I first started in high school, when I first started hearing about these, for me, I remember that when I worshipped, like, without even like trying to, I'm like, I started bowing <laughs> in service a lot more. I started, like, it changed the way I started thinking about God, the way I approached him in prayer. Um, man, it, it, it strips away a little confidence we put in the flesh and, and it's instead instills great gratitude for the grace of God. Thirdly, I think the doctrines of grace will help the Bible make more sense to you. It's one of those things, I trust, if you've never seen it, once you see it, it's everywhere. It's all over the Bible, right? You're going to see that God is orchestrating his plan that he's had from the foundation of the world, and he is, he is working it out, right? Um, yeah, you're going to see it everywhere. So God choosing Noah, God choosing Abraham, God choosing Isaac but not Ishmael, choosing Jacob but not Esau, choosing David but not his brothers, and that's and that's just for service, right? Choosing uh, choosing Israel, choosing the twelve apostles, uh, but we start reading verses like about election and predestination and God choosing and ordaining all things that come to pass and. I remember for a long time just kind of like memory holding that, just like reading it and move along, you know, because I didn't know what it meant. I didn't want to think about it. But a, a reformed understanding sees a definite purpose and plan of God, decreed from eternity, working out in history, accomplished completely to the praise of his glory. I think a non-reformed view tends to see God as doing the best that he can to accomplish his purpose while his choices of sinful man are constantly frustrating him. Just can't get done what it wants to get done. Number four, the doctrines of grace, I think, will nourish your heart and your mind. Right? As I've always, I think it will encourage you, rightly held, and, and I think it will it'll you know give you great comfort. But I think just reformed theology generally is intellectually satisfying. If you're a person who likes to think, you know, and likes to read books and likes to, you know, weigh weigh things, I mean, I think you'll find that it's it's intellectually satisfying. By and large, Reformed theologians are the ones writing weighty systematic theologies. Not the only ones, but in the evangelical world, they're pumping them out, right? So if you consider yourself a deep thinker, you like to ponder the deep things of God, you like to, you know, I think this, this is something, a bonus. You'll find it intellectually satisfying. Uh, but not only that, you know, because it's not like, hey, here's some cool doctrines to think about. No, I think it'll fuel your worship, right? It'll... You know, it's, it'll fuel your joy. It'll, I think it serves to calm anxiety. It can bolster faith. It creates confidence. Number five, doctrines of grace provide assurance and comfort. And there's something sweet about this idea that God has a plan. And it's not going to be thwarted. No matter what, right? And you can say that with, with confidence when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And there's more weight behind that than we ever thought, right? All that comes to pass is according to his will, right? And even the evil that he allows in the world, he does so because he has a purpose for it. It's not as though God is saying, oh, I really wish that wouldn't have happened. Oh, I really wish I could have stopped that. It's like, no, no. That doesn't make God evil. It just says, I did allow this. But I'm going to work all things together for the good of those who love me, those who are called according to my purpose. So this is really comforting to Christians because we're going to get bad news in our lives. 
Something is going to go terribly wrong in your life at some point. And you're going to throw up your hands and want to, and want to say, why, God? And it's comforting to know that God has a good and sovereign plan. And it may not be what you wanted right now, but all things work together for good. You see it like it's an encouraging thing. It gives us assurance also, as we'll talk about in two weeks, that our salvation is a sure and steady thing that we cannot lose or forfeit or fail. God, the God who saves us will hold us faithfully to the end. Lastly, uh, the doctrines of grace will, I think, empower you, will empower your evangelism with confidence. And this is, this is, this is actually one of the things that uh, gets um, used as, um, that's what I'm looking for, uh, it's, it's often an objection to, to like a reformed thinking or Calvinism or election. It's like, if you believe this, then you, then why would you share the gospel with anyone, right? If God chose people and those are the people who are going to be saved, then why even tell anyone? God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> Not tonight, but probably next time. But, but far from it being an impediment to evangelism, right? I think that's an error in thinking. And election doesn't impede evangelism. It empowers it. It allows us to be bold with the gospel, just this morning, we heard from Ben Bechtel. He and Greg were planning a church. They believe this stuff. They're planning a church because they believe God has elect in, in Harrisburg. And they're going to go find who they are by preaching the gospel to everyone they can and let God do the saving. Ed Mejia, who we just sent, he holds this too. Acts 29 churches, who we just heard about church planning Sunday, planning churches all over the world. Believe me, Reformed people, Calvinists, love the gospel, love sharing it, and they go all over the world. And the nice thing is, is that you know, we, we believe I can go to I can go to the biker bar, right? I can go to the headhunters in this part of the world. I can go to Islamic countries where you would think that like that if if it's all up to them and if it's up to my ability to convince them, nope, don't got a chance. But if God has some in every tribe, tongue, and nation, he can save the people that we think are so far from God there's not a chance. It actually gives us confidence, right? There's a, there's a story up I'll have to tell it later. But there's a story where, where Paul goes to Corinth, and, uh, and they basically reject him. He's getting ready to leave, and God says, nope, I have people in that city. Go back in there. They rejected him. They're not saved yet. God says, I have people in there. So he goes back there for 18 months and preaches the gospel and, and plants the church in Corinth. So it, it allows us, it empowers us, right? I think it also allows us to pray a certain way, right? It allows us, like, I can pray, like, for my children, I can pray for students, I can pray for my neighbors. God, change their heart. I'm going to say so boldly, only a Calvinist can truly pray like that, right? God, remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh so they will hear the gospel and believe. So I, I think, and there's many more things we could say. Those are the things that are, that are near and dear to me. So I want to invite you to listen to these things wherever you may be at. And now let's pray and get started. Lord God, uh, we just want to give you praise. I pray tonight, Lord, it would be a time of worship and praise. Lord, I, I pray that, that your name is exalted. Lord, help me to rightly handle the word of truth, Lord, so that um, I do not need to be ashamed, Lord, so that you are glorified, your people are edified. Lord, help me to make these things clear, Lord, not to lay uh, barriers. Uh, help me to speak clearly, Lord, to communicate in such a way, uh, Lord, that it's easy to understand and embrace. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So my goal is to at least tackle number one before we'll take like a five-minute breather and break. 
I will pause for questions, I think, right before that. Then we'll do like the next two points and have some time for questions at the end. So in your notes, I do have lines. So if you have questions along the way, uh, please write them down and we'll try to tackle them at the end. Is that good? Thank you. All right. So number one, we'll start with our first point. God is in control. We're going to be talking about the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. Uh, so for these, I've, I've included sections from our expanded doctrinal statements. You know, this is what we have held from the beginning. Um, and so you kind of see where it's represented in Living Hope Church. So number three in our doctrinal statement, <coughs> excuse me, God has a good and sovereign plan in, encompassing all events, people, and spiritual beings. In the expanded part of that, which the elders teach and believe, is God who is fully loving, personal, righteous, just, and powerful is sovereign over all things, events, people, and angelic beings, both good and evil, orchestrating them according to his plan for his glory and ultimate good. God has given man a true and voluntary will, yet it is subject to his ultimate governance. Uh, I will read my... Uh, oh, actually, that's, that's the next point. So I'm going to break this down into a couple different topics here. The first is, let's talk about the supremacy of God. Everything in existence was created to bring God glory. Famously, and I reference this a lot, um, if, you, if you know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? What's the meaning of life, right? You know, it's like your kids ask that at some point. Somebody, well, why am I here? What's the chief end of man? And, uh, and it answers this really short and sweet answer, which just really has stood the test of time. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We've gotten a lot of traction with that. And it's true, right? That, that is why we exist. It's why everything does exist. To bring God glory. It's all for Him. It's all about Him. Nothing which God made exists as an end unto itself. God did not make any angel or being or human being and say, I'm just going to make you and let you, you know, live your best life. Just, just whatever you want to do, you do. Like, that is not what God's plan is for us right he is the focal point the center he's the main subject if you please he is the protagonist of the story okay he is the good guy it's all about he's the one who saves the day it's all about god that's why romans eleven thirty six says for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen right it's all about god Colossians 1, 15 through 17, speaking of Christ, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's a lot there, right? God is, is the center. He is the focal point. We see this also in the first commandment, right? When God says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the very first thing, right? If we get that wrong, we get everything wrong, right? The sovereignty of God is the second thing, right? God has ultimate authority. He is 
the final authority. And he is not limited by any external force or power or principle or being or law. There's nothing that checks his authority. It's like, oh, I really wish I could do this. But this thing, person, being, force, law that's in place is preventing. No, the, the only thing that limits God is his own being. God cannot sin, for example. God cannot tell a lie. God, you know, things like that. And so, but God is not limited by anything else. Right? Psalm 115.3 says it in a very boastful way. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Right? In, in Matthew 20.18, I, I love, by the way, that how, we, the, the Great Commission, you know, go and make disciples of all nations. I love the, like, the beginning and end of it. Right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then at the end it says, and behold, I am with you always. Like, that's some good stuff right there. That's a good sandwich between the Great Commission. But Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me by the Father who possesses it always. Right? So, God, and the thing is we need to understand is when we say God is sovereign, it's not just that he holds an office. He's not like, you know, the, I almost said queen, the king of England, who like is king but doesn't really get to do anything. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not what God is like. God, you know, actually uses his authority. And it, we should not think that God voluntarily surrenders his, surrenders his sovereignty to others, such as man, for example, to make decisions that would be foolish, right? And God is no fool. We believe that God is supreme, that God is sovereign. But more than that, I should say more than that, also, God has a plan. We talk about the plan of God. I love this quote from Lorraine Botner. Um, I have a big stack of books somewhere in this room maybe it's in the back I, I should have got another table but I got a whole bunch of actually I think it's under the table but it, you don't have to get it but I have a whole bunch of uh, oh you're getting a snack or you're getting the books okay <laughs> um, yeah so anyway he has this quote it says it is unthinkable that a God of infinite wisdom and power would create a world without a definite plan for that world I know. That's a, by the way, that's his first line of the chapter. That's a solid way to start a chapter on, God, right? on God's sovereignty, right? Nobody begins a large project without a plan. Sorry, some people do. Those plans fail, <laughs> okay? You know, um, but, but only a fool would go to, like, say, build a house without having an extensive blueprint and plan so that everything comes together to a desired end. And he knows when to bring certain people about. If the first day of the job he's like, I got the roofers, it's not going to go well. If he's just like, guys, I bought some lumber, we're just going to see what happens. You know, That would not go well. It'd be funny, but it wouldn't go well. But we should not think that God did that, that God just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to create the world and just see the possibilities. That's not what God did, right? God created a world with a definite plan. He did not set out to create the heavens, the earth, the angelic animal and human creatures without a plan. Rather, all... All things that would come to pass, even the choices of man, even the fall, even the sins of wicked people, even the sending of his son, even the second coming, even the fall and rise of empires, all things God planned ahead of time, before the foundation of the earth. For example, Psalm 139.16, which about pro-lifers, we, we, I am one, we like this verse, Right? You, your eyes, God, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, yet as when there were none of them. It's a solid verse, right? 
We believe that God, so God has a plan. But we believe further than that, that God has a decree. A kingly decree, you know, it's magisterially when, when a king or ruler says, I decree this is what is going to come to pass. So sometimes this is the, the way that's described of, of God actually saying this is what's going to happen. It's another way of talking about predestination, which is not just a philosophical word, it's a biblical word. Right? Isaiah talks about this. This is Isaiah. Good book. Just going to say it. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11 says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. Not just predicting it, not just knowing it, declaring it. He's going to declare what is going to happen from the very beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Acts 4, 27 and 28. And listen, this is, this is a preaching describing the crucifixion. It says, For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That is really interesting. Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, the Jewish leaders, they all came together and in their own way exacted what they wanted to do. They had their own plans, their own will, right? But the way the scriptures say it, they were gathered there because God ultimately was the one behind it. That they were gathered, to, and he, they were predestined to take place what God Ephesians 1.11 In him we have, an, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what we believe then, from, from these are a sampling of scriptures, right, is that God does not merely just know the future. He's not just somebody with binoculars who's like looking down the corridor of time and saying, yep, write this down. You know, like, and he's just, he has a knowledge of it. God knows the future exhaustively because he's decreed what will come to pass. So that's God's. So God has. He's sovereign. He's supreme. He has a plan. He decrees what will come to happen. And then providence is, is what's actually happening in time. Okay? The providence of God. What God has planned and decreed is what he's actually doing. Providence is God working out his plan that happened before the foundation of the world. So everything that occurs is the unfolding of what God has decreed in eternity past. He doesn't make half time adjustments improvements or changes he's not like waiting to see what happens and then like and then you know making adjustments he's not the shift in baseball right he's not a spectator he's active right he's sending rains to some locations and not others he gives to some what he withholds from others he raises up rulers and he brings them low he raises up businesses and brings them low he gives some people riches to others he gives poverty to some he gives children and family to others he does not he gives a variety of competencies in art, speaking, mechanics, medicine, athletics, science, architecture, music, and more so. He restrains the sins of some, and he gives others over to their sin, while others he saves from his sin, from their sin. God answers our prayers. He's building his church. He's nourishing the saints. He's spreading his kingdom. But all of this is not like an in-the-moment decision. God's just rolling with the punches, seeing what happens, working with whatever we give him. That's not what's happening. 
Rather, God is working out his plan and his decree. As I read in Ephesians 1.11, that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He's doing what he said he would do in eternity past. Even the smallest thing, even the rolling of a die, and I think I have dice in my bag, which I'm not going to get, but if I roll a D20 or a D6 or whatever it might be, every result, even of that die, is, is beforehand from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There's no such thing as random. There's no such thing as chance. Which, by the way, sit on that as you're thinking about gambling. That's like a challenge to God's sovereignty in some sense, right? But that's another seminar entirely. God's providence means that he's holding every molecule together at every moment. Creation is not self-existent. The gravity, electromagnetism, the water cycle, the borders of nations, the atmosphere, um, the very air that we're breathing in this room right now continues to exist because God upholds it. The very cells in your body okay, that are, that are, that are, that are uh, holding your pie together, all things hold together through the sovereign will of God is working out his providence because he wills it to happen. Hebrews 1.3, we just uh, went through Hebrews not too long ago, talks and says that he upholds the universe by, his, by the word of his power. So God is very big, right? You can see how once you start digging in these trenches, like, whoa, this means something. When we say God is the Lord, that God is master, that God is in charge, right? And I think there's something the Christian, that should make our hearts sing, like, the bigger God is, you're like, yeah, that's, that's awesome, that's great, you know. But it does raise the question about, well, that's divine sovereignty. What about human responsibility? You said a lot about God and his choices and his will. What about humanity? What about free will? And I, and I promise you we'll talk a little bit more about that. And we'll talk a little bit about it here. We'll talk about it in another section, and we'll also have some uh, in two weeks. And I will say this. Reformed people, Calvinists, whatever you want to call it, believe that God does all of this without violating the agency of mankind. How? Well, that's up to God, right? But we believe that God does not force us to act contrary to our nature. God is not holding a gun to our head saying, you will do this. God does not, uh, that, uh, God does not force us to sin. He does not force us to make decisions that we do not want to make. However, he has planned that everything we do, even the sins that we commit, come to pass to the degree that it works according to his purpose. We are still responsible agents for what we do in the body, because it is we who do them. Consider Proverbs 16.4. Right? The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of judgment. That's it. That can be a challenging verse to, to read and think about for a little bit, right? That God even has a purpose for that. And I, I hope I don't misspeak here, right? It seems as though God's providence has kind of an active and a permissive aspect. I think God, I want to say this, you know, trying to be careful, but it seems like God is very, very active in things that are life-giving, saving sinners, blessing people, organizing and upholding the world. But God's relationship to sin is, is different. And I think I want to, to just make this clear 
that God is more of a hands-off approach to sin. God, you know, when God punishes people, a lot of times he's giving them over to their sins, like Romans 1 talks about. He, he withholds his restraining grace, right? He, he takes off the bands and says, you can do what you want. He takes the leash off of Satan so that, so that Satan does what Satan wants to do, right? He has something of a permissive aspect when it comes to sin, right? So God is involved, for example, in, in lifting his restraint, in hardening hearts, which, by the way, is really just kind of confirming people in their sinful decisions. Um, when he could soften their hearts, he chooses to set harden. So, so God, God's sovereignty does not deny a human will or that we make voluntary and real decisions. And I will say, you know, we're honest about this, that there's some mystery here, right? Yet humans do have a will. We make decisions that we are accountable before God. But God is the ultimate cause and humans are secondary causes. And I'm going to give you an example of this that I heard years ago that was actually really helpful to me. In the book of Job, which is uh, chapter 1, you know, if you remember the story of Job, uh, Satan comes before the Lord because he's allowed to. And he says, look, look, you know, Job, he blesses you just because you bless him so much. He praises you, but if you take all that stuff away, he will curse you. God says, okay, Satan, came on. Right? And so he says, you can do whatever you want to him, but you can't hurt him. You can't touch his body. And so that's when so Satan does a couple things there. And one of the things we read in verse 12 is that, that he stirs up the Chaldeans, right, later on the Babylonians, to make a raid on Job's camels. They come and they, they make a raid and they, they steal the camels and they kill the servants. They ride off. And then the, the servant comes and tells him what happened. And there's a question there. Who, who's uh, responsible for what happened there. Who's responsible for it? The Chaldeans made a raid on Job's camels and they killed his servant. Satan stirred up the Chaldeans to affect Job in this way and God permitted Satan to do this. So who's responsible, right? Who's, and I want to ask you this, whose will was violated in that chain of events? The Chaldeans are morally responsible for the evil they did, for stealing and murder. But they were doing exactly what they wanted to do. They just wanted some camels. Right? And so they stole them. Satan is morally responsible for evil as well. Because he caused the Chaldeans to act. He tempted them. He, he put it in their imaginations. You know, I presume it's through temptation. We're not really told. But it was his idea. It was, but his will, what was his purpose in it? His will, his purpose, was to cause Job to curse God and die. Right? God is the ultimate cause, though. This only happened because God permitted it. And yet, he did nothing evil. God, it, this could not have happened apart from God's permission. He allowed, it because it's, he allowed it because his will is that by means of this, Job's faith would be tested, tested and strengthened. So you see, like in this situation, God is sovereign. Everything happened according to his will. He permitted these things to happen. And all those agents, Satan... And the Chaldeans, they acted according to exactly what they wanted. They were not forced to sin. And yet it happened exactly the way God wanted it to. And by the way, and how it ended is exactly how God wanted it to end. Satan became, did not curse God and die. He repented and came to faith. And God rewarded him. I think it's an example of how God has decreed all that comes to pass, even the sinful acts of men in a way, or in the devil, in a way that accomplishes his purpose, where God can sinlessly use sin. Sometimes people say God can... 
uh, make, how do I say this? I, I, I just lost it. Can make, can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. <laughs> Somebody have said. Yet God is not the author of evil. He doesn't force people to sin against their will. And what God has decreed will certainly come to pass and cannot be otherwise. So uh, this is, I, I, I say this, this is very God-centered theology. The alternative in many, in many cases is, you know, maybe a more man-centered theology or some hybrid of the two. And if that's the case, you know, sometimes there's this idea that God has to share the spotlight. Right, that he must respect my opinions, that I have rights here, and God needs to respect my rights. No. God has all the rights. We have duties and responsibilities and privileges. But it is a great error to have man at the center of our theology. It's the height of foolishness and pride to question God, to demand something of God. Even to, to, to disagree with his choices as though he needs our counsel or input or approval or permission. He needs none of those things from us, right? God is God, and we are not. We are creatures. And I would say this, of all the attributes of God, I think none are so offensive to sinful man than God's sovereignty. Like, none of them. Like, even the worst sinner has no problem with, you know, God loves you. That's great. I love me too, right? Or God's mercy, or God's kindness, or generosity. Praise God for all of his attributes. But there's something about this that just sticks in sinful man's craw, right? Sinners would gladly step outside of God's jurisdiction if we could. We do not want to be ruled by him. Charles Spurgeon, I have a couple Spurgeon quotes. He's really good, right? He says, man will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. And Consider this. When Job, we'll get back to Job, when he had a complaint against God, finally he did complain after all this, Right? You know, and he had something of Casey, like he didn't do anything really wrong. But at the end of it, he, he starts like, hey, I'm righteous in this. And he starts questioning God, right? And he, and, and, and he says, you know, God, why this happened? And, and God's answer ultimately was, Job, who do you think you are? Do you know who you're talking to? In Romans 9, which I'm sure we're going to discuss at some point, uh, when Paul is talking about election and predestination, he anticipates the objections that people are going to have, right? If God is in control of everything, if everything works out according to his plan, then why should he blame me for anything I do? He's the one who planned it. You know, who's, who's going to resist his will? And on a human level, that argument resonates with us. On a sinful human level, I'll say. But consider Paul's response, writing by the Holy Spirit. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? It's really another version of God's answer to Job. Hold on a second. Let's pump the brakes a minute. Who are you again? It's important to settle this in our minds for a number of reasons, right? right? That God is God and we are not. And everything that flows from here is really going to be uh, uh, improved and, and much easier to embrace if we get a God-centered theology. But I think there's some good things about this. One, it, it, it frees you to take the spotlight off yourself, right? You were made to glorify God, and when you put him first, oddly enough, you'll find the most joy and satisfaction. You are not made, meant to bear the weight of life being all about you. Like, you're just not. Like, none of us are, right? And I'll, and I'll give you an illustration. Um, 
Gen Z going on right now is, is a really unique generation. And, and maybe more than any other generation has a ton of affirmation coming their way. If, if a teen girl you know, posts a selfie on Instagram, just follow the comments. And oftentimes you'll see you know, 40, 80, 100 girls just commenting like, oh, you're so beautiful, you're awesome, you're a queen. And just like a bajillion comments, right? And you'd think that that constant praise, that that feeding of one's self-esteem, like, oh, this is what people need. This will create stability and emotional happiness. Gen Z, especially girls, are the most depressed and suicidal generation America has ever had. It, in part because of this. Because we were not meant to be the focus. We are not meant to bear the glory. We're not meant to bear that level of celebrity, right? Oddly enough, when we take you know, what, what John the Baptist said and we're like, you know what? He must increase, I must decrease. That's when true satisfaction comes because that's what you were made for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? It allows you to take the spotlight off yourself. It secondly allows you to face anything and trust that God has a plan. Even great tragedy, even horrific sin against you, right? God has allowed into this world to accomplish his will. And sometimes there's a temptation to want to exonerate God from any wrongdoing. Because terrible things happen. And at some point we say, God had nothing to do with that. That's not the path you really want to go. It's a lot more comforting, even, even in those tragic times, to say that, it's, that God allowed this but he allowed it for a reason. It is not purposeless. And that God is going to redeem through this. And this too is for my sanctification. And something good will come out of this that will bless and give glory to God and goodness to me and others who I don't even see in the halls of eternity. This light momentary suffering is not worth comparing to glorious to be revealed to us. And I will give Job some credit here because at one point he does say, though he slay me, Yet I will hope in him. And man, if God is sovereign, it's, it's so much easier to say that. And lastly, this really does shine a light on grace. Grace is grace. It is undeserved. God is wise, good, and gracious. And everything that follows must be understood in light of the supremacy and sovereignty of God. And there's some question here. There's some mystery here. There's things we're not going to understand. I freely admit that, right? How does... Divine sovereignty and human responsibility overlap. I tried to give some examples with what Scripture gives us. You know, but, but there's still some mystery there. We know that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. right? And they were doing exactly what they wanted to do. And yet Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 says, Brothers, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And he did. God planned that Joseph's brothers, of their own will, would save them into slavery so that Joseph could, and, and Joseph, by the way, was falsely accused of rape, and then he was put in prison again, and then eventually, so he could rise up in Israel, sorry, Egypt, and then plan for a six-year famine, right? God has a plan. Deuteronomy 29, 29 uh, allows us to have a little bit of perspective. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that he has revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So it, there are things God has revealed to us and what he tells us in his word. Amen. That's, that's for us. It's for our good. There are things God has not told us. And you know what? Let's be silent there. Let's not do empty speculation. Let's, not, let's just trust that God is God. He has a plan. Sound good?
So uh, part two is this. It's worse than we thought. Yes, bomb, bomb, bomb. The fall of man into sin and its terrible consequences. So in our expanded doctrinal statement, part four, we say God regards all people as disobedient, rebellious, separated from him and needing his forgiveness. The expanded part says God appointed the first man, Adam, to represent humanity. And so the state of sin into which he walked has been attributed to all mankind. Correspondingly, each person willingly chooses to turn from God and live in disobedience and rebellion from him. In his unregenerate state, man is spiritually dead, enslaved to sin, and incapable of pleasing God or repairing the relationship in his own strength. So we're going to break this down a little bit. My summary at the beginning on the fall of man was that the fall of man into sin has corrupted every aspect of mankind. We're not merely sick and weak spiritually needing a little help. We are, as I just read, dead in sin, unresponsive, blind, enslaved. Sin has put us at war with God. As such, the human heart is unwilling and incapable of voluntarily submitting to God. No one seeks God or responds to God on his own. So due to all the material that we're going to cover tonight, I'm not going to be able to spend time really talking about the fall in Genesis 3 or how that occurred or everything else. Rather, our focus is going to be specifically on, on the impact of, of, that, of the fall, the extent of our own sinfulness, right? We are, and I'll start with this, right? We are far more evil than we realize or are willing to admit. I got another Spurgeon quote. It's not in my notes, but I think I've got it from memory. It says, don't fret when people say bad things about you. You are far worse than it is, right? And ironically, one of the effects of sin is that it blinds us to just how sinful we are. Humans have a very hard time coming to grips with this. We rationalize, we minimize, we excuse, we shift blame, we divert attention, we hide, we lie about it, we redefine words so they don't mean the same thing anymore. All in an effort to exonerate ourselves before God, before man, and before our own conscience. We aren't that bad. We're just just wounded, just weak, just prone. I, just, I make mistakes. Scripture doesn't pull any punches, though. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through some of these things. Sometimes this is called uh, total depravity. Um, sometimes total inability, sometimes radical depravity. And this does not mean that we are... You know, uh, we are utterly sinful. Where where, um, we are as sinful as we could possibly be. No, this this really means that sin has corrupted every single part of us and every part of humanity. There's no one who this who is not affected by this, and sin has corrupted every aspect of our being and has rendered us unable and unwilling to respond positively to God. So let's run through it. We have sinful bodies. Sin has affected our bodies. At the fall, death entered the human race, and our bodies are withering away due to sin. The day we're born is the day, in some sense, we start dying. The clock starts ticking. But beyond that, we sin We, we, we sin in the body. God gave us our bodies so that we could accomplish his purposes, so that we would reproduce and have dominion on the earth for the glory of God. But instead, the way Paul talks about it is we offer up our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness in Romans 7. 
right? We use our bodies as an act of defiance against him. We have natural God-given urges that are good to eat, to sleep, to have sex, to work, to rest. And yet sinfully, these physical urges become overpowering masters that we degree, that we, um, that we obey. They, they, they get way out of control where our, our desire for rest becomes laziness. Our desire for sex becomes just exploding into all different directions. Our desire to eat becomes overeating and so on and so forth. We have sinful minds, right? Romans one twenty one talks about how we, we all, and he's talking about you know, making an accusation against pagan people, but it really applies to all of us, right? We all have a sense of God. We all know God in some sense, just being made in his image, and he's put a turning in our hearts. It says, they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul warns against, he's writing to Christians, and he warns about not thinking the way they used to, you know, before they were believers. In Ephesians 4, I say this and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them through the hardness of heart. 1 Corinthians 2.14 goes even further. The natural person, by the way, natural person is what we are when we're born into this world, naturally sinners, Right? Um, you might say the Christian is the supernatural person, maybe. Uh, but the natural person or the, the sinful person does not accept the things of God. For they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Right? We, we just don't think as we should. Now, even scientists, you know, God, is by his common grace, has given us great minds. And we can make great observations about the world. But we don't interpret them rightly. We don't actually draw the right conclusions that we are we are supposed to because all things should give glory to God. If we're looking through a microscope or a telescope or looking at great works of art or looking at nature, all of that should terminate in us giving glory and praise to God and delighting in Him. And instead, we'd make it about something else. We have, And I could go on about, about that as well, but our, our sinful minds, we don't draw right conclusions. We don't think as logically as we would like to think that we do, right? We have sinful hearts. By Genesis 6, 5, if there is ever a damning verse in Scripture. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Are you ready for this? That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is heavy, right? And because of that, God flooded the earth. But the constitutional nature of man has not changed. That was the natural man then. As the natural man now in the fall. That still holds true, right? That every intention of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. I'm not that bad. What says scripture? Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We don't love what we ought to love. Or we, or we don't love the things we ought to love in the right way. We either love them too little or too much. We should desire God, but we don't. The natural man doesn't desire God. And I pause, and I want to pause because we all know someone who are like, well, this person's not a believer, but they have no beef with God. They, they, <clears throat> they're not a Christian, but they like God. It's like, well, hold on a second. It's not, I think natural man doesn't have a problem with the idea of God, but we want to make God in our own image instead of the other way around. 
natural man rejects the God who actually is, as he is. Once you start getting specific about who God is, it's like, oh, well, that's not the God I know. That's the God who is, though. Natural man does not like that God, and it has a, a reaction against him. One of the parables Jesus talks about, there's this phrase that just resonates in my mind that I think perfectly encapsulates what sin is. We do not want this man to rule over us in the parable. We do not want this God to rule over us. So the natural man does not desire God, does not accept him, and will not willingly bow the knee to him. We We love our sin more than we love God and the things of God. We have sinful wills. God gave us the faculty of moral choice, no doubt about it. Adam was created good. All right, remember that? At the end, he created everything and it was good, and then at the end of creation, he was very good. Adam had the capacity to choose evil. He, he, was, he could fall, which he did, but his inclination early on was to do good and to choose good. Before the fall, Adam and Eve actually had the capacity to fulfill all that God commanded and could have earned eternal life. But since the fall, we've lost all those gifts and those privileges. Sin affects our ability to make good moral choices. Even our wills are corrupted. And I'll, and I'll just, as an aside, I think Reformed folk tend to not like or use the phrase free will. I don't particularly like it. Luther said that it's kind of a term that's emptied of all value at this point. And I would say to most people, it's kind of like a given. Like That's the starting place. And then we'll measure the sovereignty of God by how well it lines up with our, our, our idea of free will. And I believe the phrase free will can be defined in such a way with, with certain qualifications that it actually makes sense. But I think mostly it's just more of a, main, a misleading term. I would talk about free agency or human responsibility or we have a voluntary will. I, I prefer things like that. Because scripture says we're not free. But we're actually enslaved. John 8, 34, Jesus said, Truly, I truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6, 22, Paul writes and he says, But now you have been set free from sin. Why? Because you were, you were enslaved to it. You've become instead slaves of God. Now you have a new master who you want to obey. And the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Here's the point. We're not neutral. It's not as though we, we, we and that's, I think, if we, if we think about free will in terms of like, well, we're neutral to God, I'm on the fence, I can either choose God or not choose God. That's not actually the point. It's like we have a will, we are making choices every single day, but our will has been corrupted by sin, and so we are choosing every day, the natural man does, contrary to God. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So that's what we think. It's not, so when we talk about, well, this means we don't have free will, it's like, well, the Bible says we're actually enslaved to sin. That even when God stands all day saying, come, the door is open, come, salvation is yours, and sinfully we say, no, thank you. I don't want that. We're making decisions, right? I, I have a, my van has all sorts of problems. There's a hole in the trunk. We can, my, my son was looking through and he goes, oh, I can see the road while we're driving. Um, <laughs> the, the door handle fell off. Sorry, Lachelle, I'm here. <laughs> but the volume knob works, but it only goes down. Is that what it is? So you turn it up and it goes down. You turn it down, it goes down. 
It's a Toyota. But it has almost 200,000 miles on it, so now it's a grand experiment in faith. Um, but the volume knob works, but only one way. Our wheels are kind of similar for the natural man. Our moral faculty is still there, but it's only working one way. Yeah. I thought of that, I thought of that like the other day. I'm like... Arthur Pink, he wrote a book called The Sovereignty of God in the back there. He says this, The sinner is free to do as he pleases, but his pleasure is sin. That's kind of a simple way of putting it, right? Um, yeah, the natural man, as I said earlier, longs to step outside of God's jurisdiction. People, we, we mourn, people mourn that God exists and we're under his judgment. Consider that. Like, we're, we're more, you know... We, we mourn the fact that God exists and that hell exists more than the fact that we actually deserve to go there. More than, you know, we, we would rather that God not exist than give up our sin. Like, we love our sin more than God. That's the natural state of things, right? And we'd rather ignore God, wish him out of existence, than actually submit to him. And those who do mourn over their sin are really more so that of the consequences of their sin. I try to have sex with as many people as possible, and I happen to get pregnant. Or I got this disease, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Not me. I'm speaking as an example, okay? <laughs> but I'm saying, like, we mourn not because we don't want our sin. It's because we don't want the consequences of our sin. And then we blame God for them. You know, after Adam and Eve fell, you know, God confronts Adam about it. And, and Adam says, the woman that you put here, she gave me the fruit and I ate of it. He literally blamed everyone in existence but himself. The Bible says in Romans, uh, it's, sorry, that says 10 in my notes. It's not 10. It's Romans uh, 3, 11 through 12. Pulling together multiple scriptures from the Old Testament. Paul, he writes his gospel, by the way. We, our, my core group is going to the book of Romans right now. And before he gets to, you know, Romans three twenty three, he's like, I'm going to tell you guys the gospel now. And then it's like two chapters of basically showing how everyone deserves hell. <laughs> like, the pagan man, the moral man, the Jew, everyone is unright. And this is his final thing he says. Before he gets to the good news, he says the bad news. And this is what he says. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That sounds harsh. That doesn't play really well. That's not going to get you a book deal. Lastly, uh, we're dead in sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your sin, trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I will fast forward and say verse 4 starts with, but God. <laughs> okay. But for now, let's hang there. He says, you are dead in your search, trespasses, and sins. Right? And he says, you were enslaved to Satan, the prince of the power of the air. You were doing everything else that the world was doing, and you were enslaved to the, the sins of the body and mind. Like, what does this all add up to? Our whole nature, body, mind, heart, spirit has been tremendously, radically corrupted by sin to the, to the point that we are entirely incapable or unwilling to seek God or obey him. Instead, we are not neutral. We are hostile towards God. 
right? The Bible is severe in its assessment of man. We are not good. Nothing in us is in itself is pleasing to him. None of us are as sinful as we could possibly be, and some sinners are more sinful than others, yet all are dead in sin and unresponsive. I read this week, and it was staggering. We, we talked about, and I, this kind of touches on a little bit of what we were asking earlier, you know, about the problem of pain. and says we don't have a problem of pain. We have a problem of pleasure. Why does God let a single sinner live a second longer? We are the ones who have rebelled. We are the ones who have done all of this, transgressed him. We do not deserve the next breath in our lungs. We have a problem of pleasure that he sends the rains, the righteous and the unrighteous, that he does good to the wicked and that's all of us, right? That he blesses even the worst sinner with good things. And what do we do in return? Nothing. Thanks. And we just keep it selfishly and turn that glory on ourselves. I know, by the way, all of this is terribly dreadful. Even, even John Calvin, right, whose name sometimes gets this tagged with this, he called this, I'm not going to say it in French, but he called the, hor- well, the horrible decree. Or it's actually talking about reprobation. Say, this is... That's actually another point. Sorry, let me. That's for later on. But it recognizes this is a, a terrible thing. I remember this this week. Uh, I read. I had one day where I was really trying to catch up for this, and I read sixty pages on told depravity. I almost didn't make it. Um, didn't make it out alive. But I assure you that just because it's unpleasant and sounds extreme doesn't mean it's false. And I, I think that you know. Here's the thing. The first two points I've discussed: the sovereignty of God, the sinfulness of man. Man, these. are... It's all gravy from here. These are the most offensive things to send to the natural person, right? Right? That God is much more God than we'd like him to be or think he is. And we are much more sinful and, all, and worse off than we, than we think we are. We often try to moderate them and soften them, right? We, try to make, we have to make God a little less sovereign or a man a little less sinful, but the scripture doesn't allow us to do that. We have freedom of choice, you might say, agency and responsibility before God. However, because sin has so corrupted us that we choose to reject God every day, every time. Preaching the gospel to the, to the, to the natural man apart from the grace of God, we might as well preach in a cemetery. Because the problem is not that people are sick or they're neutral and just need some convincing or an entertaining program or clarity. They need resurrection. They need to come back from the dead because we're dead in sin. And so, when we, even when we see the light of truth, when it's right in front of us, sinfully we don't understand it or even like it. And since man would never and will never choose God on his own, how can anyone be saved? That'll bring us just a moment to our next part. That, God, that we are incapable of choosing God on our own. And yet we find that, everyone who come, that, that there are many who come to Christ who will be in his kingdom. And we'll find out it's not because anyone chose him ultimately, because he reached in down into the, the mass of fallen humanity and said, you're mine. Not because you're lovable. Not because you're good. Not because I foresaw that you would have faith. Not because I, I would look down in history and see that you would accomplish much for my name. I'm going to set my love upon you and I will save you. He doesn't tell us why. But we believe that God is the one who saves sinners and that changes everything. I will say this. Um, I think mature Christians actually don't mind hearing about how sinful we are. You ever been to a preacher? You're like, tell me, just tell me, I'm sinful. Pray, you know, not because we want to hear it, not because we're like masochistic or whatever. We want to, you know, we want to suffer. It's because we're like, no, you know why? Because that just makes the gospel that much sweeter, 
right? If you want to show a diamond or a, a golden <coughs> ring, what, what, what do jewelers put it on? They put it on black velvet, you know, or something. They put it on something dark so that it glitters that much nicer, right? The gospel glitters that much stronger and sweeter when it's seen against the black backdrop of our own sinfulness. So don't be afraid of this. Know that it makes God, the gospel that much sweeter. Um, for sake of time, I would like to move right on, so please hold questions. If I can ask that, I'm going to ask it. We're doing that. Um, <laughs> to go on to the next spot, so I can because i got a lot here as well. Then I'll, I'll have room for questions, okay? Decreed it. I have decreed it. <laughs> Number three, the love of the Father. God's plan to rescue specific people. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created all things for His glory and humanity for relationship with Him. The expanded part, for sake of time, I'm going to skip down to the last sentence. It says, knowing this relationship would be broken by human rebellion, God planned before the foundation of the world to send a Savior to restore this relationship through His death and resurrection. The eighth part, the eighth part in our uh, expanded doctrinal statement God rescues people from death to life based on his initiative and grace. God distributes forgiveness and new life solely based on his own grace and not any merit or inclination of man. Desiring to glorify himself through his mercy and love, God chose some to have the blindness of sin removed, receive the gift of faith, and voluntarily accept the offer of salvation made to all people. Seeing fit to glorify himself through his justice and judgment, God leaves others in their natural state of sin, resulting in eternal death. So let's let's kind of break down uh, a definition of what this is. I gave, a, uh, a, I think, a longer definition at the beginning of this, and I'm going to break it down kind of phrase by phrase. Uh, but I will read it one more time through all together. The grace of the Father's election to salvation. Before the foundation of the world... And according to his own counsel and will, and not due to any foreseen faith or merit, God the Father lovingly chose some from every tribe, tongue, and nation out of the whole of fallen humanity, whom he would save through Jesus Christ, so that he might make known to them the riches of his glory and grace. Those whom he has not elected to salvation, he has chosen to leave in their fallen state to face his just wrath. We're going to take that phrase by phrase. So I'll start with before the foundation of the world. I'm not going to read all the scriptures here. I've done a lot of reading already. so But I, I do want to read this one because it's, it's really, really sweet. Ephesians 1, by the way, is just an amazing chapter. All, really, Ephesians is a cool epistle just because there's like no problems going on in Ephesus at the time he wrote it. In Revelation, there was. But at the time he wrote it, there was no like heresy. It's not like Corinth where he has to correct all their errors and problems. So he just takes the opportunity to be like, let's just talk about the deep things of God. So it's like a really like in-depth book about God's purpose. And he says, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in beloved. When did election take place? We believe that God chose those whom he would save, and he did this 
um, before we were even in existence. Before God said, let there be light, he put the names of his chosen ones in his book. Revelation 13 talks about it kind of in the inverse, actually. But he talks about um, those who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, the book of, of life of the Lamb. Which means that there is a book of life, the book of life of the Lamb, and the elect's name is written in it. And they were written in it before the foundation of the world. God has, has the names of his chosen in his book never to be removed. And this does not happen in time. This is not something where God is like watching and seeing what happens and, he, and he's making additions to his list. God is not altering that list, adding to it, removing it as though he made a mistake. But all the elect, all who will ever come to Christ, their names are written in his book before the foundation of the world, Ephesians tells us. We believe that this was according to his own counsel and will and not due to any foreseen faith or merit. I will, I will say, by the way, that um, Arminians, everyone really believes in election. That You can't just read this and say, like, I don't believe in election. Like It's there. It's not a matter of what you believe. It's what you believe about election. Right? So Arminians believe in election. They just believe it on a different basis. They would say that God foreknows. They would take that to mean that God looks down the corridors of history. He sees who will believe in him, who will choose him, and therefore God says, I will elect them. He foresees faith. So God is res- election is more of a response in their view. I don't believe that's the case at all. Right? That God chooses according to his own counsel, not because of anything he sees. He doesn't look down and say, oh, that Karen, she's going to be a woman of faith. Or that Mike, I know he's going to hear the gospel, and when he hears it, he'll choose. Or, you know, Morgan, she'll be so fruitful. If she hears the gospel, I know that she'll be really, really fruitful, right? You know, um, I'm looking around. Holly, she'll be a great prayer warrior. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't actually even tell us why. Whatever God's criteria may be, that is the secret will of God that he does not, that he does not tell us. But we, do, we don't believe it's anything that we've done. Romans 9, 11 through 13, Paul uses the example of Jacob and Esau as an, uh, to, to kind of show this, right? It says, though they were not yet born, they hadn't done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose, of, but in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, um, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. Why? Was Esau more hateable? Have you read about Jacob? He's not that awesome, right? The patriarchs, not great as sinful men, right? Abraham was uh, a pagan when God called him. But it says that God chose, and not, not because one of them was better than the other. They hadn't been born yet. They hadn't done anything yet. And to us, it seems arbitrary, but we don't believe it's arbitrary, that God has a purpose in it. And his purpose is based on wisdom and love and goodness. Right? 2 Timothy 1.9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave in Jesus Christ, gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to you, to God, sorry, ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through, through, sanctifi- through sanctification by the Spirit 
and belief in the truth. Election is not a result of God seeing that you will believe, as election is the reason why you do believe. God chose you so that you would be sanctified by the Spirit and that you would believe in the truth. It's not a response to your belief, it's the cause of it. To this he called you through our gospels, he may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Romans 8, 29, 30. Those whom he foreknew, which by the way, that's the verse people think, oh, God sees. This is the biblical no. You guys know what I'm talking about. You know, it's, 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 it's a loving, God foreloved, right? Um, those whom God uh, chose to love ahead of time. I'll give you an example. When Jesus uh, gives the parable, he talks about those who will, um, who are doing all these great works and they'll come to, they'll come to the gate and they'll say, you know, I belong to be here. And Jesus says, depart from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Of course, Jesus knows everything about them. He knows their name. He's aware of all of their works. I did not know you in love. So those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is sometimes called the golden chain of redemption. God foreknew, he predestined, he called in history, he justified, he glorified. By the way, who's the subject of all of that? He. He did it. Salvation is of God. God's choice of whom he would save is not based on anything in us, either good or bad. Um, God chose according to his own goodwill, his counsel, his wisdom, his purpose, those whom he would save. It's not arbitrary. We don't believe God flipped a coin. It was just like he just called up names, flip, flip. We don't believe that at all. But he keeps his reasons private. Right? But the effect for us is that none can say God chose me because I. You know, at the end, of, here's the thing. At the end of the day, you know, you go into heaven and you see somebody who you knew on earth and you're believing, man, you know, I'm so glad you're here. How'd you get here? Why are you here? And you're like, is it because you were a good person? No, I wasn't. You know, it's because of the grace of God. And you go, well, come on, why are you really here? At the end of the day, you're going to say, well, I accepted the gospel. Yes, but even that, there's not going to be anything you can say that you can be like, I'm here because I did this. Well, I did this and my brother didn't. Or I was one of those kids in youth group that sat up and listened and I heard the gospel. Like, God will not even give us that. Even the faith that we have is a gift, right? God is, and rather, God has set his love upon you for no reason within yourself. You do not deserve it. Not even your response of faith is responsible for your election. It's a result of it. I love Acts 13, 48. Listen to this. And when the Gentiles heard this, that's the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What's the order there? They were appointed to eternal life. And they, they believed. They made a choice. They actually, we're, we'll get there next time. <laughs> right? They made, but it's because God chose them first. We love because he loved us first. And that's an effectual love. That's not such a generic like, oh, I, I generally, God has a general love for humanity. Absolutely. God loves all of his image bearers. He sends the reins on the righteous and the unrighteous. He is kind to all, but he has a special electing, saving, effectual love on some. Which is the next one. God the Father lovingly chose, right? In verse 5 in Ephesians <clears throat> chapter 1 says he or the last part of verse 4, in love he predestined us to adoption. God's choice of whom he would save was a choice rooted in 
love. So if we think about this purely as just, you know, God's just picking winners and losers and heaven and hell and he's just assigning people and it's careless and callous. No, 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 no. Scripture does not present it that way, nor should we think about it that way. God is doing what he's doing in love. Not based on the loveliness of the sinner, but on the choice of God to set his love upon them. Election reinforces the truth that God's love is completely unconditional and undeserved. And it is a wondrous grace that saves sinners. Grace is not help. It's completely unmerited, unwarranted, undeserved. We have, God, there is no reason in us why God should do anything but, but judge us. It doesn't make sense. If hell is full, that makes sense. If heaven has one person in it, it's only because of grace. He doesn't love us because he foresees that we accept the gospel. I've said it a couple times here. I must have rewrote that in my notes a thousand times. But God the Father lovingly chose and, praise God, some from every tribe, tongue, and nation out of the whole of fallen humanity, right? <clears throat> um, God chose to save some from every people group. Heaven is going to be populated with lots of different languages and colors and, and nations and cultures, right? Uh, there will be a lot of that represented in heaven. This should encourage us, by the way. To go to all the nations. I just watched a video recently that Japan is like one quarter of a percent Christian. You know what? <laughs> I was watching church today. <laughs> That's where it was. But I wasn't in church. I was watching from home. Okay? Because I was trying to stay away. And uh, but I, That's where I heard that. But you, so you saw the same thing I did. Right? It seemed, and it's been that way. An unreached people group is less than 2% evangelical Christian. That's how we typically talk about it does that mean we should say those people are hard-hearted it's too hard to convince them to, to, to accept the gospel no god has people in japan he's going to save god has people in the hard parts of the world that he is going to save their names are in his book and they have been there since before the foundation of the world and christians should have the courage to go forth with that gospel because god has people there and, and by the way you guys you have family that are just like there's no way they're too far gone. They're too sinful. They've made too many mistakes. No. Pray. Trust. In the final hour, the thief on the cross, right, right next to Jesus, there was no time. There was no time left. He wasn't baptized. He didn't have good theology. He was a wreck. He died hours later. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So trust. That, that thief's name, his entire life, God let him live his life. It was his will that God lived the life he lived so that the moment of his death right before God would bring him in. Because his name, that thief's name, who we don't know, we'll know it someday, his name was in God's book before the foundation of the world. I already, I, I, man, that was, a, that was the good part for my Acts thing, you know, with Corinth and going back into the city. But that's where, that's where it happens, where Paul, you know, is about ready to give up on Corinth and, and, and in a vision, the Lord says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And Corinth became a church because God's elect were there. God chose those lovingly from every tribe, tongue, and nation out of fallen humanity, those whom he would save through Christ Jesus. Right? And I'm not going to read 2 Timothy 1, 9, and 10 um, as I'm getting close on time. But here's the thing. Election does not save in and of itself. An elect person is not born saved. Nobody is born saved. Right? God has chosen the ends and the means. He's chosen the outcome, what will happen, but also the manner it will come about. Okay, when it will happen. Think about it. There, you, 
you don't have control of so much in your life that God did. You didn't choose when you were going to be born, in what country, in what part of the country, what language you would speak, who your parents would be, what your financial situation would be, what experiences you would have, um, what access to the gospel you would have. There's a lot of things that you had no control over, but God did, right? So God ensures that all his elect will hear the gospel and eventually they will unfailingly believe. Well, that's a conversation for next time. Some people he saves early in life, right? Some people are born and they, they go through Sunday school and they're like eight years old. I was talking to Eleanor the other day and I was in bed and, and, and Addison, I got to baptize my daughter Addison at eight and Eleanor, I'm like, and just talking about the gospel, believing in God. She's, she's like, I want to get baptized when I'm eight. Is God, you know? She's seven, so I'm like, Lord, keep her to that day, you know? But some people, it's not that way. Some people, God saves much later in life, in their 20s and their 30s and 40s. For some people, God saves them before they make a train wreck of their life. Other people, God allows them to. In fact, that's part of his plan. But you know what? Sometimes those people actually love Jesus more and are more thankful because they get the total depravity part more. <laughs> they don't need as much convincing. Right. So God, say so election is setting the reservation, but everyone, all of God's elect, will be saved through Jesus Christ. That is part of His chosen. Um, all be saved through Jesus Christ. He did this so that He might make known to them the riches of His glory and grace. In Romans nine twenty three, it says He did this to, in order that. In order to make known the riches of his glory for his vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. All right, so this idea that God has set apart a people for his own possession, he has chosen people in order to shower on them all the blessings of his goodness and mercy. God is a really good dad. He's, he's got a really big house, and I'm singing an audio adrenaline song in my head. Okay, um, and he's like, I'm going to pick people that I'm just going to shower all my good gifts on abundantly, right? And to them, he will reveal all of his glorious qualities. Consider this. God will be more glorified in us and it will be more joyful in him through salvation than in if we had never fallen, if we had never fallen. Angels who never fell are in heaven longing to look at what God has done for the sons of God. They are longing to see what, what, what is going to, to work, you know, what God is doing in us, to marvel to see the work of Christ in us. And they praise him every day for his saving work. Revelation kind of talks about that, right? The glorious grace of God would never be known or displayed or experienced otherwise. And that's something Romans 9 talks about. Like, why did God allow, why did God even allow the fall? That's an important question. Why did God even allow sin? One of the answers in Romans 9 is that God desire was to display all of his glorious attributes in salvation and in judgment right and so God so God is more glorified and we are more joyful and we would we, we know more of God's goodness and it'll be more more um, wondrous and glorious even to us being saved than if we had never fallen uh, last point on this before a few closing comments those whom he has not elected to salvation, he has chosen to leave in their fallen state to face his wrath. This is sometimes called reprobation. And this is where I talk, I, I misspoke earlier. This is what uh, John Calvin called the, the horrible decree. Not because it's bad, but because it's, it's terrifying to think about, 
And it's, you know, the idea that this is, in the, this is maybe, the, maybe the most difficult doctrine in Scripture. But the fact of the matter is, is there is a hell, and there will be many in it. And Jesus doesn't lie to us when he says, you know, the way is narrow you know, to, to life, and, and few find it. The way that the destruction is broad, and many enter it. So this, so reprobation is God's choice to justly punish for their own sin those who he has not chosen to elect. And this is not the same or equal to uh, election. Election is a positive decree out of fallen humanity. That God actively intervenes to save from death. And election ultimately cost God the life of his own son. Election is a positive decree, right? Reprobation is more of a permissive or passive. God is choosing to leave people in their fallen state. He simply chooses not to set upon them his saving grace, his electing love. To leave them in their falling state, not giving them the saving grace. And here's the thing, and they still will experience so many of, so much of God's common grace. There are unbelievers who will remain so to the day they die, who will have a much more earthly blessed life than you and I ever will. And that, that's not just like, just because. That was part of God's plan too. God showers blessing. There, there are people who are who will die billionaires, who have everything they could ever want in a physical world, right, that we will never have. Access, and, and, and people will live longer than you and I, who have better health, maybe have better marriages, maybe have better well-behaved kids, will be more successful in their endeavor. We could go on, right? And yet, all of that, it only serves to further condemn them because even with all of that, even that will not, all those gifts of God's grace, this common grace, even that won't cause people to like, you know, maybe I should love God. Even that can't turn our hearts. So it just further serves to condemn. But I think we should, I want to read Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. To be sure, God does not delight in the death of the wicked, just as he does not delight in the suffering of his saints. Guys, when we suffer, when evil happens to us, Please don't think, because I said that God has a, a decree, that God has a plan, that he's up there going, oh man, I can't wait to afflict you with this. Did God take pleasure in afflicting Job? Did he, did he take pleasure in, in that the 12 of his disciples, you know, suffered terribly? Paul was beheaded, you know, by tradition, Peter was crucified upside down, they were shot with arrows, all of his great prophets were sawn in two, burned a lot, you know, seriously, like, does God, does he delight in that, that? No. However, God has a greater plan for them. However, God is in, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. However, God is not in, unjust for choosing not to save them who are in rebellion against him. He will be glorified in his justice as he is glorified in salvation. I know that's a big topic. We could spend a lot of time just talking about reprobation, but I think I need to mention it because um, it, it is part of it. But I would like to speak of it as more election is that positive decree of God. Probation is, is a, a real thing, and it's no doubt weighty and difficult, right? Um, but we believe God is just and good in all that he does. Let me read this quote uh, from Spurgeon on election. I like Charles Spurgeon. He's good. Everybody likes Charles Spurgeon, though. Well, you should. If you don't, it's probably on you. 
says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept the great biblical doctrine. Some, uh, some observations about election, and then I'll, I'll be done. Election is, is, is kind of some analogies, you might say, and I'll close with these things. Election is something of a family secret that God lets us in on. Most people, it's not like you hear it before you're a believer. It's like you hear it later on in life, right? You know, every now and then you'll hear like, oh, did you know you're related to so-and-so? I didn't know that, <laughs> right, you know? When we first hear the gospel, it's usually rightfully presented, I would say, as this free offer that we must choose. And that's entirely fitting and right. It's how Jesus preached the gospel. It's how the apostles did. Come, all you are hungry, all you are thirsty, you know, come, and you will have salvation. You will have life. Right? Calvinists preach a free and open gospel. Any, any who come, any who believe will be saved. And this can lead us right often to believe that quite naturally our salvation is because we I made a choice. And yes, that's true, but we learn kind of later on in our Christian life that the reason behind our choice was that God chose us first, right? From eternity, that he worked in our hearts to produce the faith that led to our belief. Election is kind of like a reservation, right? Christ calls Christians to make disciples of all nations, to preach the gospel far and wide, to go out into all the towns and villages and everywhere else, to tell everybody and anybody and everyone that if they believe in Christ, they'll have a seat at the table in God's kingdom. And any who believe indeed will have a seat at the table. But when we make it to the table at the great feast of the wedding, the great wedding feast of the Lamb, we'll find that God wasn't waiting to see who was going to make it and then add our, add our names once we got there. Right? We're going to find that he set our reservations long ago. That he put our names on the list and set our place at the table. And when we enter, we'll see that there's no empty seats and there's no more need for chairs. That God set our reservation long ago. Jesus says in Matthew 22, many are invited but few are chosen. It's like marriage, right? And this election is like marriage in that a husband chooses his bride and, and she in return chooses him. However, it's also different. In our way of doing things, a man proposes marriage uh, to which a woman may refuse. Sometimes that happens. But if she, if she accepts, they go to the altar and the man says, I do. And the bride can still refuse and call the whole thing off because usually I think we're doing it I think the right way, that the, the man goes first and the bride goes last in the, in as far as the questioning goes. Uh, maybe I'm old-fashioned. The bride can still refuse and call the whole thing off. It all hinges on the bride. She gets the final word, right? Election is a little different, though. It's more actually like an arranged marriage. And hear me out on this. God the Father, full of wisdom and goodness, chooses a wife for his son, the bride of Christ. But here's the thing. You guys remember Hosea? Remember what God says to Hosea? He says, take a wife of whoredom. You're like, are you serious? Like, can you imagine if you're a prophet and God tells you that? Take a wife who's going to cheat on you, who's unfaithful, who's not living an upright life. An unfaithful bride, not beautiful, not delightful. At least now. Instead, she's unsinful. She's sinful and unresponsive. But someday she's going to be glorious and good and beautiful and she will be fit for you, my son. I'm choosing this bride for you. 
And the, sons, and the son says, I do. At the very beginning, before the proposal is even given, he says, I do. And then he will come, he comes to earth and he wins his bride. He dies for her, gives his life for her to rescue her from the dragon's evil clutches. And the whole plan of salvation is to call these people out of the world, to wash them of their sin, to purify them, to beautify them, to unite them, and to prepare them for this great wedding feast of the Son. That's why Jesus says later on in John 6, which is one of my favorite verses. Well, I have to do this next time. He says, all the Father gives to me will come to me. The Father gives people the Son, a bride, and he says, and they're going to come to me. And I will give my life for them. And on the last day, I will raise them up. I will save my bride. That's the gospel, folks.